Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast, where we hear stories from everyday people who do extraordinary things. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Okay, here we go. So today's show is going to be a little different as compared to some of the last shows because I'm having trouble getting people (laughs) to sit down with me and chat about sailing or anything they want to. So, a little bit of a surprise, but I keep harping on a few people, and hopefully I will get them in to do some more interesting uh, interviews and stuff like that. But I figure in the meantime, I might as well talk about a subject that's going to be coming up really shortly here, and that is the trip up to Maine. So, Always about this time of year, it's uh, getting to be just about the perfect time to head north and get back up to a little cooler temperatures. Down here in South Carolina, been, you know, peaking into the mid-80s. It's really cold right now for some reason. Last night, winds shifted to the north, and I think it got down into the 50s. So a few of the extra blankets and things like that that I stowed away thinking... It was always going to be hot again down here. Uh, I had to come out, so that was interesting. But it was a nice night's sleep. Uh, The wind sort of howling through the rigging and everything. I don't know. Sometimes I kind of enjoy that. I try not to forget that um, it's kind of a cool experience. In a lot of ways, I find it very similar to camping, being out in the woods and having you know the wind cutting through the trees and and all that I don't know there's there's just something about that white noise that I I really enjoy maybe it just sort of sets sets in motion the the knowledge that I'm out in the elements and wouldn't need any sort of sound making machine or anything like that I don't know for some reason I like that I'm weird what can I say but so today what I was gonna do is just go through sort of my checklist and all the things that I have to do when I'm sort of preparing for this next little voyage. And, you know, obviously I say little voyage, it's 1,100 miles, something like that. And because I'm solo, I go offshore, stay out of the traffic, so I'm not doing any stops along the way. And the pros and cons with that really... The pro is that you get up there faster. The con is that if bad weather comes in, there's not a whole lot I can do but but just ride it out. And one of the reasons for setting off at the end of May or in June is most of those big systems that are coming down from Canada, sweeping across the states, and then turning into low pressure systems as they leave Cape Hatteras, those, the frequency slows way down. Now, in May, you can get pretty horrific conditions out there, but they're just less and less frequent. And typically what I look for is a system going off that will then be sort of followed by a bit of a high pressure system, get the winds coming out of the south and try and ride that. I look for primarily a good three or four day window 
so that I can get north of the Gulf Stream because I can hook into that after about a day and then I'm cruising north and before I know it, I'm north of Cape Hatteras and whatever happens after that is whatever happens. But for me, the scary part is the Gulf Stream off of Cape Hatteras and to the north of that because I've been surprised out there a few times and it gets really uncomfortable and with the weather changing as quickly as it can, you sort of are always looking over your shoulder wondering what the heck's going to happen. So that's my my game plan. And then typically once you get out of there, three or four days in, you're getting into more of a safety zone headed towards Cape Cod, Georgia's Bank, and then into the Gulf of Maine. Last year, I was able to do that trip in nine days with a buddy of mine and perfect weather, strong southerly for the first bunch of days. We only ran into northerly winds, I think, once near Georgia's Bank, and that only lasted for 12 hours, and then it died off, and we sort of motor sailed the rest of the way. So that was probably a record trip. I think the year... Anything I did before that, we're talking 12 to 14 days, but usually that was from the Caribbean. So in any event, uh, like I kind of always do, it it all starts out with just a notebook and a pen, and I just start jotting down everything that needs to be inspected, replaced, replenished, all that sort of stuff. So just going down this list, the first thing I have on there is sales and you know, obviously sales need to be inspected. So as soon as I get a nice, lovely day, I will pile up the 10 or 11 sales that I have, um, throw them in a cart, go up to the grassy knoll and whip them all out and check them. Any of them that have little tiny holes or any any areas with chafe and stuff like that, I'll fix those. If I have to, the old right sewing machine will come out and then I'll be diligently doing repairs. But typically for for me, what I like to have on board in you know good condition, two mainsails, uh, two big headsails, two staysails, and then the storm storm jibs. I have two of those, uh, different sized ones and different weights. You know, one's really heavy duty. And then one's not so heavy duty, but it's a little smaller, which I don't know. It's kind of strange. I would have liked it to be the other way around so that when all hell breaks loose, I can put one up there that's crazy strong and crazy small. But that's sort of the sale plans that I like to have. And the one thing that I'm missing, well, actually, there's two. So my spinnaker, that's toast. Uh, that that completely disintegrated on the trip around the Atlantic. Uh, but the big drifter, that's the one I really am going to be missing. I've got a, a pretty decent size sort of heavyweight drifter, but I had this gigantic one and it was perfect when the winds went down below into the like five or four knot range. I could still somehow get Sparrow to just ghost along. And that was, that was pretty amazing. It, uh, it was sorely missed. That one got destroyed in the doldrums back in uh, 2018, and I have yet to be able to find a replacement. Um, it was a used sale that I bought, but <clears throat> in any event, uh, so the sales, that's, that's a big one. I just want to make sure they're all good, and I know 
I know that most of them are, but it's always good to take a good, thorough look. And a lot of the stuff that I'm doing over the next couple of weeks really is is done primarily because I could still fix this stuff when I'm out at sea, but it's always way more difficult, takes a lot more time, and it's typically just not what you want to really be doing when you're out there. I mean, I want to be cranking back, reading books, listening to music, watching the waves go by. I don't want to be sweating it out down below, moving and pulling sails out and the sewing machine when you're underway, it's it's not that fun to deal with. It's much easier to do these things on land. So all the sails come out, they get all sorted out. Uh, and with that, I do a nice thorough check over the mast. So basically climb on up to the top and check every little fitting. Uh, make sure there isn't anything coming loose or chafing or anything like that. And I, you know, periodically through this winter, I've done that as well. But Sparrow's been a sleeping giant, to say the least. You know, we've been down here at Ladies Island Marina for, gosh, since October 12th. That's when we pulled in uh, last year. And, yeah, it's been many, many months of sort of just sitting here and doing the liveaboard thing. And you sort of, I don't know, I don't want to say the boat's gotten weaker, but uh, it just always feels better when she's out there out at sea and she's still moving around and stuff to be sitting for so long. You got to expect that as soon as you start making, making Sparrow move a little bit, she's going to have some creaks and groans and not be too happy in the beginning, but we'll get there. We'll definitely get there. So the mast, you know, and then I'll go and, and sort of re redo the truing of the mast. So I'll, I'll go through and make sure she's standing up perfectly straight. All the tensions are pretty good and everything is, is looking pretty solid because obviously the mast is sort of the biggest one. The, the scary thing, you know, the nightmare scenarios, you, you get rolled or the mast comes down, something like that. And you basically lose your propulsion. (laughs) I mean, with the West sail, it's, it's a little different mindset I think because you lose your mast on a west sail and you are in one of the world's greatest lifeboats then you know and if your engine still works you got a quite a good range and the biggest thing is that you're not going to sink you know these these boats are absolute tanks I mean they were really designed as pilot vessels and all that sort of stuff they're they're off of that I think it's a Colin Archer design. I could have that wrong. I'm not, I'm not too up on my old West Sail history, but it's an old Norwegian design, really. The, the old double-ender built like a tank, beamy. Not fast, but boy, is it seaworthy. So get that mast all sorted out, make sure everything's looking good, and, uh, and sort of go on from there. The next big one, obviously, is the engine, because I want to make sure this engine is going. And it has been a bit of a trial and tribulations uh, dealing with this engine after that trip around the Atlantic, because I I probably put a good 400 hours on that engine, and it really, I don't know, I could just tell things were getting a bit iffy um, with some of the systems in there. One, the oil level was going up, and I couldn't figure out what that was. It wasn't from water. 
Uh, and I eventually, when I got back here, uh, I remember leaving for a couple of weeks during the holidays and then coming back and I went to go fire up the engine because I typically like to run the engine for a couple hours uh, every week or two just to sort of keep everything lubricated, keep it all moving. And luckily I went and checked the engine oil and it was three times higher than it should be. It was ridiculous. And it smelled of diesel and I knew I had a serious problem. And that, that can turn into, uh, or it, it can be brought on by a number of different issues. But the easiest to fix was the um, lift pump, which basically is just the first line of pumps to be able to pump the fuel into into the engine. And I replaced that, and everything seems to be okay. I've run the engine quite a bit since then, and I always check that that oil level. But one of the things, one of the reasons why you always want to check that oil level is if your oil is really, really high, one of the things that can happen, and it's it's kind of one of the scariest things, is called a runaway, and that's when your engine basically you can no longer stop it and it just starts revving up and revving up and the only way to actually prevent that or to to stop it once it's started is to block the air intake and so you know it's always kind of good to at least have a plan of action on that so you know that all of a sudden if things start going crazy you can you can jam something into the air intake and that'll that'll cease the engine up a little bit but man if I would have fired that engine up with that oil that high, I'm sure it would have been a disaster. So I sort of averted that one just by doing the normal, the normal routine of checking the, checking the oil, checking all that stuff before you fire up the engine. It's, it's definitely worth it. And I think before I, I definitely had gotten a little bit lax on that, but, um, since that happened, it's one of those things where it sort of taught me that lesson. And so I doubt I will ever be firing this engine up without checking the oil and, and some of the other fluids. So, <clears throat> But what I like to have and what I'm accumulating at this point, I like to be able to do two oil changes on any passage if I need it. So I need enough oil to do that, which is basically, uh, I don't know, two gallons. I'll probably get one of those three-gallon jugs or whatever, and that will sort it. Make sure I have oil filters to be able to change those as well and then I have a few spare fuel filters change those out and then alternator belts change those out other than that I think uh, transmission fluid coolant um, and that's pretty much it I mean I have I I've always had a spare alternator on board and I always have a spare starter on board other than that, you know, you can't fill your boat up with every single spare part you need for an engine. You might as well just have a second engine strapped to the deck. You know, there's there's only so much you can do. And in reality, I I can always rely on the sails. That's the biggest thing. And uh, But I want to be able to keep that engine going. And I last but not least, I can't even believe I forgot to say it, but the impellers uh, for the keeping it cool, pumping that raw water through. And uh, I think I have about four of those on board, leftovers, but um, unused, ready to go at a moment's notice. I still remember one time when the engine was overheating, pulled the impeller out, and it was 
it it wasn't missing any rubber blades, but it was it had a bunch of them that were cracked through, so it wasn't working very well. And I could not find any impellers. And I'm way out to sea. I think I was headed to the Caribbean or something. And oh my gosh, I had to peel through everything. It took me like two hours to go through every little place on this boat. And then I found that I had two spares on board, but you know, knowing where some of those are and making sure everything, I like to sort of compartmentalize where I store things on this boat now. And, and that's typically just, just so it's, it's much easier to remember. Okay. Well that, that cabinet over there houses all the engine stuff. That one houses all the tools, blah, 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 blah. So that's pretty much what I try and do for the engine. And obviously I have, I'll have full fuel on board. Um, I don't think there's a diesel fuel crisis right now, but um, <laughs> it's crazy. I'm in South Carolina, and yeah, the gas stations don't have any gas. It's pretty pretty interesting. You know, you sort of see clips of that stuff on YouTube and whatever, uh, but then to actually be out there in reality and, and see these, you know, the other day there were just lines of cars <laughs> trying to get fuel, and then one gas station didn't have any at all, so... Luckily, I don't have a car, so I, uh, I'm not too worried about that. And I have, I still have more diesel than I can fit into my tanks from this last trip. I'm getting close, though. I'm, I'm almost to the point where it's just in my two 35-gallon tanks. So, so that's pretty good. Do 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 do. Checking the batteries, the next one down the line. That's always important, making sure that your battery's water level, depending on which kind of batteries you have. But I've got the old school El Cheapo, you know, basically car batteries. Um, and there's four of them for the house and then one of them for the engine. But you just go through, you want to make sure everything's sort of clean. There's no big corrosion buildup or anything like that on anything. All the terminals look really good. Uh, but mostly it's, it's checking the, the water level inside of the batteries, making sure it's all topped up and that way it's going to be able to hold a good charge. The batteries aren't going to hurt themselves and, um, you're going to be able to power everything. Cause you know, obviously I've been just plugged into shore power down here. I don't really have to use it much because the two solar panels on a sunny day before noon, I'm already basically fully topped up as far as the electricity goes. And I don't know, I, I, I've always wanted to see how much, how much power I, I actually use. It can't be very much cause I don't even leave the, the charger on. I think, I think while I'm here on a dock, maybe like 20 bucks worth a month. If that, that's even, that's even doubtable. Cause now I don't use a heater at all, and I don't have air conditioning. I think the only thing I actually have plugged in is the my computer, and that's about it. But that's not on all the time either. Uh, yeah, so get the batteries, make sure they're all good. And that's, that's sort of the propulsion stuff. Now, the rest of it um, is sort of all smaller little things, but that's, that's all the propulsion. Now, I am going to sit down with a buddy of mine before I leave. And he is sort of an expert when it comes to the electrical side of, of things. And more than anything, I just want to learn how to use a multimeter better. 
so that when I do have electrical sort of issues on the boat, I can figure out and troubleshoot them a lot better. So there's still a lot of things that I need to learn about all these systems. And I do have the big book, you know, the boat owners, mechanical and electrical guide and all that sort of stuff. But that can only go so far compared to, you know, sitting down with somebody who really knows what they're doing and, and showing you exactly what's going on. So I still have a few lessons to learn there. <clears throat> We're going to actually trade, trade services because they just got a sale right. And I know how to use one of those. So I'm going to sort of show them a few tricks that I've learned over the years selling sales. And they're going to show me how to use this multimeter properly. Because right now, the only thing I can tell is if something is live or if it's not. I want to learn how connectivity and all that sort of stuff. So should be pretty cool. Um, the next system, obviously, is going to be the propane. Because I want to be able to fry up those fish when I rake them in. Um, and also be able to just cook other food and stuff. Now, I, I still have my two systems where... I typically just boil water with the little jet boil camping stove. So for any coffee, tea, dehydrated meals, things like that, I'm always going to just use that because it's quick, it's hyper efficient, and you can measure out how much water you're boiling much, much more, much more efficient than uh, just pouring it into a kettle. But I want to make sure that my propane stash is all looking good. So I'll probably end up switching out the uh the the big sort of normal size what you would see on somebody's gas grill or something like that i have one of those and then i have three smaller ones and the smaller ones are all full but i kind of want to keep those full and just keep replacing the larger one um you know eventually i need to replace all of them because two of those are not originals of the boat, but they were on the boat and they were made in 1980, 82, something like that. So they are, you know, <laughs> they're almost 50 years old uh, or almost 40 years old. So I have a lot of trouble finding places that will actually fill them, even though they're, they're pretty heavy duty. They're the type that are made out of aluminum, like heavy, heavy duty aluminum. Um, but still, you know, in the Caribbean, you can get them filled up. They don't care down there. But up here in the States... Uh, you got to find a willing and able person, but they also have to be inspected and stuff like that. That's one of the reasons I really like the Caribbean. It's just not a lot of rules and regulations like they have up here. Ah, drinking my lemon water. Delicious. Hot water with a slice of lemon. Making sure I don't get any of those kidney stones. Or at least that's what people tell me. Um, so propane, yeah, everything else seems to be okay with the propane. I'm going to be using the oven quite a bit on this trip because I've recently switched over from eating normal pizza from Pizza Hut or all those other places to making cauliflower pizzas, trying to do a little substitute because <clears throat> I don't know if I've talked about this, but normally before these big trips and definitely on the last one, I try and gain about 15 to 20 pounds uh, just to be able to make sure that if I ever get really low on food and have to ration again, I've got a, uh, a good little base weight to work off of, you know, seeing, seeing myself in the Falkland Islands that time was scary. And 
I hope to never see that again. But so I gain all this weight. I go out to sea on what's supposed to be like a year-long trip, and it ends up just being in the Atlantic. So I'm on there. I'm eating all the good stuff like I always do, all the kind bars and all that sort of stuff. So I kept the weight on. And then I got back to land after 88 days, and I had missed all these things like pizza and burgers and all that. And so I just kept eating, and COVID was still going on. So I was like, oh, my gosh, comfort me, food. And so basically I went and um, just kept all the weight on. But over the last two months, I was finally able to buckle down a little bit and switched up. I've always done a little bit of exercise and stuff, but... It, I had to sort of make sure that that was more of a daily routine. and But the biggest thing was the food. I needed to sort of cut down on, on some of that stuff that I was eating. So switched over to a lot, lot, of, lot of other more healthy sort of plant-based stuff and, and just protein. But anyway, going down a rabbit hole here. Uh, I'm going to definitely be making a lot more food like cauliflower pizza and stuff like that and hopefully make my own bread and everything on this trip so i'll be using the oven a lot more that's my point is instead of just boiling water and eating you know mres and all that sort of stuff i'm going to try and and actually do some some quality cooking while i'm out there on the ocean this time so i will be using that oven which uses a lot more of the propane that's why i want to make sure i have enough propane uh, you can go down a rabbit hole pretty quick here. <clears throat> uh, let's see. Fishing supplies. Yes, that one. I wanted to make sure I've got enough lures. And it's it's really basic on this boat. I, I just have a hand line, which is just a fishing line. Pretty heavy duty. I want to say it's I've got 50-pound test line which is pretty heavy duty. But then I think I also have like some 150 and I don't even know why I have that, but I think it was just cause I know it'll last a lot longer, but mostly it's having all the swivels and, you know, maybe five, six different lures. I can always make lures. So I have a lot of like hooks and stuff, but just wanted to peel through and make sure I had all that, that gear because I definitely am looking forward to some mahi mahi out there. And actually if I get into it, I'd love to get some more flying fish. Um, I got to look into how to, because, you know, flying fish, usually it's only one or two, and they're pretty small, so it's like a little snack. But I'm going to look at some recipes for flying fish, because if I get uh, any of those lucky breaks where you go through a big mess of them and, and you end up with five or six decent-sized ones on the deck, I'd love to have a full-on flying fish meal. So... As far as fishing gear goes, I'm pretty stocked up. And I always do, little note, little side note, I always do keep a little bit of fishing tackle in my grab bag. You know, sort of the emergency grab bag. Um, just because, you know, when I read Stephen Callahan's book, uh, Adrift, where he's out, you know, living in a life raft for 73 days or whatever, I mean, jeez. If he wasn't able to fish, it would have been really, really bad. So I always try and put myself in that worst-case scenario and think about what would what would help and what would be sort of nice in that situation. And one of those things would be fishing line. So, so that's fishing supplies. Um, and I guess that, that should bleed over into, into the safety gear. And Sparrow, 
Oh, geez. How do I say this? She's she's half and half set on that. And let me explain. The grab bag has a couple of first aid kits. She's got, I think some of the most important things in there is I have a neck brace in case something goes and I, I get like a crick in my neck or something like that. Because I... I remember on one of my first solo voyages down in the Caribbean from, I believe, St. Lucia back to the BVI, I fell asleep in the cockpit and I fell asleep sitting up and basically my head dropped. And when I woke up, my neck hurt so bad and it did, it it proceeded to hurt for, I want to say like a year or so. Uh, And one of the things that I really wished I would have had was some sort of like neck brace. So at least when I'm lying down or whatever, I'm sort of, my neck is immobilized a little bit because I've had that happen too, where I just sleep wrong on it. And then all of a sudden you wake up and your neck hurts and sailing, you're always looking up at the sails. You got to move around. And the biggest thing is the pain. If you've ever had severe neck pain, all you want to do is just lie down. You don't want to move. Everything hurts. Every movement hurts. But when you're sailing, you have to deal with things up up on deck, the sails, all that sort of stuff. And a neck brace definitely is, I think, an overlooked item in many people's grab bags uh, or just on their boats in general. So top tip from old J-Rome, get that... Uh, get that neck brace. They're not expensive. You can get all sorts of different ones. doesn't have to be anything crazy. Uh, but inside of there, so I've got first aid kit. I've got, I always keep some sunscreen. I keep some toothpaste, toothbrush, sunglasses, basically almost, almost like a, a mini catalog of things that I would want to have if I was in my life raft. And so just little amenities, not much. There's always a little bit of food in there. Um, I don't really keep water in there per se because I know the life raft has, I think, six liters of water in it. And I typically have water jugs that if, if uh, you know, everything comes down to it, I'd grab that grab bag and I'd grab a five-gallon jug of water sort of thing. But I do have, I do keep my desalinator pump in the grab bag. And so I can make the water if I need to. Although don't ever trust those things. They're they've they've failed me before, but um, you know, still gotta have one on board. Uh and then obviously all the safety stuff, the sound signals. I usually have two of those and then I've got a plethora of flares and I do have all the Coast Guard uh regulation flares, you know, the the red handhelds, the parachutes, the orange orange smoke. Um, I think I even have a green dye. And then I also have the EPIRB as well. And I checked the EPIRB yesterday, made sure the battery was good, and also did the expiration or checked the expiration. So it expires at the end of 2021. So I'm, I'm still pretty much in the green zone uh, when it comes to that. But it is towards the tail end of it, so that's a little a little disconcerting, but at this point, 
I, I, I should be okay. I'm not too worried about it. I'm, I know that when they do those expiration dates, they, they have to be pretty conservative. So the other one though, and this is why it's sort of a 50, 50 thing is the actual life raft. So I have a six person life raft and it expired in 2019 and I went to inquire about getting it serviced and checked because typically, you know, life raft is like three to $5,000. And what you do is when it gets close to expiring, then you go ahead and you send it in or drop it off at a place that's certified to service them. And then they can slap a new sticker on there saying this one's good. I don't know if I just bought the wrong one or what, but I called around to a bunch of places near Charleston and stuff like that. And everybody said, nah, you might as well just go buy another one. We sell these. And I was like, I was like holy cow. Okay. So usually I think it's between five and $800 to service a life raft and a new one's going to cost three to five grand. And I'm thinking to myself, great. I don't have any money for that. Not a possibility. So I'm going to do something very foolish and that I don't recommend for anybody, and that is to just hope and pray that that life raft is going to work just fine out there. And I, yeah, that's 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 what I'm going to do because I don't have any money to to, to buy a new one, and I wouldn't want to purchase a, a whole new setup right now because I don't know what's going to be the future of of me in this boat and all that sort of stuff. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to see what, what happens with, with the old solo sailing career and everything. That last trip really, really was, um, a big punch in the stomach, so to speak. And I think, I think this next trip is going to be sort of the litmus test of, am I still enjoying being out there by myself and, and doing the stuff that I've done for years or is it time to move on to something else? So we shall see. I'm not going to get too much into that right now, but, uh, Oh boy. So yeah, I mean the grab bag, it's, it's, it's just got pretty much anything and everything I would need for rescue signaling injuries, a little bit of food, making water, and then things things that people don't think of like sunscreen and toothpaste and sunglasses and and all that sort of stuff. I mean that that stuff comes in pretty handy. And I also do, you know, now that they have those those nice long sleeve UV protectant um shirts, I've got one of those in there just in case cuz you never know. I mean things go terribly wrong. All of a sudden boat's filling with water. It's the middle of the night you you've got the life raft already deployed the boat is sinking faster than you ever thought possible and you don't have time to go through and start being like oh should i take that should i grab that no it's it's you've got time to grab one thing get into the cockpit and get into the life raft you know that's the situation you want to make sure you're in and i always keep the the grab bag in the exact same spot it's exposed it's not packed away anywhere all i have to do is undo one little slip knot that's on a bungee and that sucker comes right out and sling it around my shoulder and I go. So that's at least the plan or the thinking behind it. Hopefully I never have to find out exactly what that, uh, how that plan works, but got to be ready for it. The next one, 
next job I have to do after sitting here for six, six or seven months is clean the bottom. And it's one of those things where I'm very fortunate to have good friends down here. And one of them owns a bottom cleaning company. They let me use their hookah and I can go down there and clean it all up. But that's one, you know, it's interesting the growth down here typically isn't barnacles. It's this beardy, algae-looking stuff. And last year when I cleaned it, it was easy to get off. It's just a scraper. There's no scrubbing, none of that. I mean, you just go down there and it just flakes off. No big deal. I did have the thinking that if I was actually moving, it would probably all come off. But that's not something that I want to test uh, and just say, well, I'll just go out there. And, you know, the first time I'm pushing through water, it's all going to just come off. Nah, it's not a not a smart, uh, not a smart idea. So I've got to clean all that up. But that only takes a couple hours. And like I said, I can use the, the guy's hookah and and that works out really, really well. But I won't do that until literally three days, maybe two days before departure. Cause in this river, I mean, that stuff grows fast. It's crazy. If I did it right now and I left two weeks from now, I'd already have a layer of growth on there. And I want, I want Sparrow to be pushing water really easy, really fast. Nothing slows the boat down quite like a bunch of growth on the bottom. So got to take care of that. Uh, I've already sorted out all the tools. That's one of the things that I'd like to do before any trip is pull out all the hand tools, pull out all the power tools, pretty much anything and everything. Go through, organize the, the power tools, make sure obviously that all the batteries that I have are all fully charged before I take off because, I don't know, I, I can charge them with the inverter, but... Yeah, they definitely take a little bit of juice to do that. So I, I also keep a pretty good stock of, of those little 18-volt batteries. So that typically is all good. But with the hand tools, I, I just really want to organize them, hit them up with some WD-40, pack them away, and make sure, you know, that I have all the, all the little things I need. Because it's amazing how tools just sort of disappear then reappear then disappear um and doing a good thorough check over on all those just sort of makes sense and it it helps give me a little bit of confidence that yes i will be able to fix pretty much any problem i i come across while i'm out there uh so those are all pretty much sorted already done that I do have to, and I think I'm actually going to do it later today because it's kind of cold. It's supposed to be rainy for the next day or so, but I need to service all the winches. I went around yesterday and spun them all, and even though they spin relatively easily, they don't spin like clockwork, and I have had to, excuse me, I've had to fix or at least just go through and, and clean winches out at sea when the boat is moving and it's not fun because you really have to be locked in and being able to do it when the boat's not moving at all. Again, it's just one of those things. It's a thousand times easier to do that here on land uh, rather than out at sea. So I figure it's going to take, that's about a four to six hour project because I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. I have 11 winches on board, but luckily they're all 
super low-tech old-school winches, so they are not complicated, but I like to get in there, a little diesel fuel, clean them all up, lube them as little as possible, put them back on, and there is not many joys that can compare to taking a winch that barely moves and then putting it back together, and it spins, and it makes a perfect sound. I absolutely love it. So going to take care of all the winches make sure that's all good and obviously inspect all the lines it's it's interesting with all these lines i have put 50 60 thousand miles something like that on all these lines and they all seem to be doing pretty good i still have spare line from the big trip in 2017 and 18 i i i just feel like this stuff is still really in good shape um but I've got the spares, and I have had to go through, and I cut all the splicing. So when I first got all these lines for my halyards and my sheets, I went and did, you know, I was so excited. I, I wanted to really make this boat look good and all seaworthy and all that. stuff. So I went around, and I spliced them all. I whipped them, spent hours doing it, but it was a delight. It was fun, and... I think I had to cut the final splice off to get rid of some chafe um, just a couple weeks ago, and that was on the main sheet. And now I look around the boat, and I only use Bolins. And now I'm really kind of in that mode of a Bolin is far more functional because you can untie it. You're going to lose less line if you need to shorten the shorten it or do anything like that. When you splice something together, it's permanent. And if you need to shorten that line or switch it up, it's not as convenient or easy. And I think it's, I think it's one thing if you are sailing, you know, normal sailing routes and things like that. But when you're spending exorbitant amount of time offshore and out at sea, you're always looking at function over, I don't know what the right word is, but a, a splice looks beautiful, but a bowling works better as far as I'm concerned for making changes to that line, where that line is, how long that line is, things like that. So, Because one of the ideas that I've always had is that you get chafe in areas where lines are sitting at the exact same spot on a rub point, whether it be a block or something like that. And so every few weeks or month or so, if you switch it up six inches or a foot in one direction, then all of a sudden you're, you're moving that, that little pressure point. And that's just a way to avoid having to replace lines and um, save a little cash, I guess. So anyway, Go through all the lines, uh, but they're all looking pretty good. I do need to replace Mongo's lines. Man, sad story. Old Mongo. Mongo took a big hit. I uh, I had a boat leaving the marina, uh, I guess a week ago, and I I don't know what I was thinking. It was it was pretty dumb on my part. I was headed to. It was really early in the morning, and I was headed in go take a shower see these guys getting ready to leave uh, from the pier next to mine, and I'm not thinking too much of it. Perfectly calm morning, nothing. And uh, instead of standing there and waiting, and there, there is a reason why I didn't stand there and wait. It's because the bugs down here have been horrific. 
I mean, we're talking, you just get swarmed and they're, they're those no see So they're biting you. They leave huge welts on me. I think I react to them pretty bad. But so in any event, I just head in. I'm like, yeah, it'll be fine. And then, geez, 30 minutes later, I'm coming back out. And as around the corner, I look over and the boat is pinned up against, there's like eight people and it's pinned up against Mongo. Uh, so it basically beam on to Sparrow and um, the current, the tidal current is just keeping her right on. And it hit the, the lower hydro blade and smashed that to the side and actually did some damage there. And I had to go through and, and tune up the whole mechanism, make sure everything looks good. It, it definitely did some scratches and things like that. And uh, so I don't know. It's one of those worries where it's impossible to test out Mongo until I'm out there sailing. And I won't really know. I mean, as far as I can see, and Mongo's a very simple, simple old gent out there. So as far as I can see, everything is ship shape on it. I have to use my spare hydro blade and I'll get the other one fixed when I'm up in, uh, up in Maine. But I don't know. It's just one of those things, uh, it was not exactly what I wanted. And, you know, the worst part was the, uh, I mean, Mongo can take a definite hit for sure. Um, and it did, but <clears throat> honestly, my first thought, because I, I just believe Sparrow is such a strong boat. My first thought was, oh no, I'm going to have to stand here while these guys deal with this and the bugs are going to eat me alive. <laughs> no concern over, you know, oh my gosh, did they do any damage? So but in any event, um, you know, I need to replace the little the little lines for Mongo. Uh, but other than that, she's looking or he's looking great. And only time will really tell if if uh, that actually goes through or not. But <clears throat> we'll see. And uh, uh, um, and I've got enough wind blades. And I suppose I could still use the the damaged hydro blade. Uh, but other than that, it's just having, you know, oil to drip over it every single morning. Uh, that's basically me feeding Mongo, but, uh, so Mongo's all good and all the lines are good. And I got the spare stuff and I've also got spare, um, tons of spare wires. So for the shrouds, four stay backstay, I could replace any, any of those. I couldn't replace all of them in one shot, but I could replace, Enough where I feel pretty confident out there. So, so that's pretty good. Um, do, 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 do. I ordered uh, my chart because I actually gave away my chart um, of the East Coast to my last crew member as sort of a keepsake. Uh, it was getting pretty old. It was marked up. I, there must have been 10 trips on there. And... It was getting a little rough, so I'm looking forward to having my new chart because I definitely love being able to chart my position. I'm not much of a computer screen guy, and I'd much rather be using the sextant and keeping track that way. I always always have the GPS feed so that I can check my, my sites and stuff like that, but you know, it's, it's one of those things where I like the old school route. And so I need to make sure I have all the charts that I want. And really that's just for me, that's going to be charts of the Cape Hatteras region so that if I have to duck in there, I know where I'm going. And then also the Gulf of Maine, Georgia's Bank, but then just the overall chart of the entire East Coast from Florida 
all the way up to, I guess it goes all the way to Nova Scotia. So I have that coming and I still have to set up the old, oh, this is the last big sort of system, I guess, is uh, weather routing and downloading. So and communications. So I need to go on and make sure the old Garmin inReach, I I think you can get it for, you can just pay for one month without having to subscribe to it. But I don't know. It's sort of a fishy thing. They, they want you to do the subscriptions and then when you cancel it, then there's a fee. I, you know, I have to check. They, they're always updating that sort of stuff, but you know, for this one, I really just want, I'd like to buy one month of service to be able to text all I want while I'm out there, check in with my parents, family, friends, all that sort of stuff. This is pretty fun. I I really enjoy being able to do that. Even as a solo sailor, it just, I don't know, it, it if I'm having like cocktail hour or something like that, it's kind of cool just to, just to text back and forth, um, especially on these short trips. I don't know. It's kind of neat. And, um, and then the sat phone, I checked that. It has uh, 75 minutes left on it, which I think that should be good for... I, I mean, I'm, I'm only looking at having to download the weather maybe twice while I'm out there, um, if that. Um, so plenty of, plenty of minutes on there, but boy, that sat phone is on its last leg. It is uh, in rough shape. I'd like to purchase a new one. But at this point, it's just not feasible. So um, I'm going to get up there. And, you know, once I know what the future is as far as sailing goes, then I'll I'll deal with that. But I think she's got one last trip. And like I said, it's only two downloads or so that I need once I'm out there. And, uh, and we'll go from there. But I've already tested the sat phone. It does work. And I can, you know, get it going and stuff. Um, so that's sort of my comms. And... Yeah, I mean, I don't really have any weather routing people. Like, I don't pay for a service or anything like that. Um, but I do have, you know, my younger brother, and then I've got my other buddy, Scott, who they, they like to dabble in the weather, and they'll give me little updates, which, again, is why I really like to have that that in-reach going. So if they see something, or or Mike Porter, if he sees something, he'll he'll definitely reach out. And it's also cool where if something really drastic changes or happens out there, I can text those guys and they will reach back out because they can see all of it in real time. Uh, and it's kind of funny because I'm seeing I'm seeing it in real life. They see it in real time, but they can actually see what's coming up. And that's that's where I'm in the dark a lot of times outside of my barometer, basically. Um, but so that's, that's sort of the weather routing systems and all that. Then, you know, I have all sort of the, the last minute stuff, which is, you know, topping up the water tanks and then also the jerry can. So I can hold 70 gallons in my two main tanks, but then I like to have at least for this trip, I like to have probably another 15 gallons or so of fresh water on board and that gives me i mean a huge amount huge amount i mean i i can even do like a one gallon shower each each evening and stuff like that so that should be plenty for this trip um so i don't have to go too far overboard with that but i do always like to keep those jerry cans because you never know 
if something is going to go a bit awry in those water tanks, I've always had that fear of ever since, you know, catching water off the coast of Africa and seeing that bacteria form. It, it's truly amazing how fast water can go from sweet to completely sour and disgusting. And if that happens to, you know, half of your fresh water supply, you are you're looking at a bunch of unusable fresh water and it's uh, it's not very good. And I don't like to have to put any bleach in there. I mean, I I do on occasion, I would put like maybe one drop for 30 gallons, but even that one drop, you can now taste it. And I don't know, it definitely affects the taste of the coffee and all that sort of stuff. But I switch out my, I have one filter for the water tanks and then I also purchased another filter that screws onto the end of the hose so when I fill the water it's going through a filter and then when the water goes to the sink it goes through one more filter and then I typically will have my little um, household water filter as well that I like a pitcher so I'll, I'll put it in there and I fill that up and it you know that one I think all that really does is make sure it tastes good because these these tanks are all plastic and you get that plasticky old boat tank taste that's not great. Um, so <clears throat> other than that, that's pretty much the, the whole water system. And I'll, I, I'll probably do maybe two or three just gallon jugs. And one of the things I like to do, which helps, uh, oddly enough, the electricity usage is I will go and I'll take maybe three gallon jugs of water and I'll actually go and freeze those, you know, a couple of days before the trip. So they're absolutely rock solid, you know, bursting at the seams, so to speak. And I will put those in the bottom of my fridge and it's surprising. Then I can turn my fridge down from 10, turn it down to like five, and it's going to keep everything cold. And those things will still have ice in them three, four days down the line. My fridge is not the best insulated, I don't think. I've never taken all the paneling apart and all that to see just how much insulation is really in there. But when I'm running full, full till on that to keep, you know, meats and things like that frozen, then... I really, it is sucking the juice uh, out of the batteries and, you know, it's not a huge deal because I can run the engine, but I I like the the solar panels when they're having a big draw on them, the solar panels are having trouble keeping up with that unless it's, you know, super sunny and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, so I, I like to freeze some water, keep that in there, help the fridge, um, and then I'll also freeze, you know, the meats and things like that if uh, if I end up bringing some of those. Typically, I, I like to bring some ham and turkey and bacon and stuff. I haven't had bacon in so long. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait. When I go out to see, I'm definitely bringing two pounds with me because I love my fry-ups out there. So that should be pretty good. Um, and then, yeah, it's pretty much making a, a nice grocery list. Again, this one's going to be a little different. Normally... I don't know. I just was eating sort of crummy food, I guess. Um, I still have, I still have eight months or so of dehydrated emergency prepper sort of long life food. <laughs> I only have 
two months worth on the boat because I took the rest of it off of the boat, um, put it at my parents' place. But um, I have those on board, and I'll always keep a couple of those just in case. You never know. It'd be it'd be nice to to just be able to get out of here and and go and stay out in the sea for a couple months at a moment's notice. Um, I'm not much of a doomsday prepper, but I figure if you got a boat, there's no reason not to. So I have a couple months worth of that food, but I don't plan on touching that with a 10 foot pole, um, unless absolutely needed. Cause it's not, it's not great, but, uh, yeah, basically get that food, load everything, stow everything and, uh, and then switch out of, dock mode and put her into offshore mode and that's really just pulling out sail bags putting those in the four peak moving my bunk back into midships putting in the leeboard making sure everything is strapped down and stowed in its proper position and not going to go flying anywhere and other than that then it's uh, pretty much just waiting and watching for a good weather window and that's already begun i start doing that typically in april because i like to just watch the weekly pattern of systems again coming down from canada going across the states and then ripping off a hatteras and turning into these these gales because that's basically how it happens and it goes from doing that every couple of days to once a week to hopefully less than that but Again, I had such good weather for the trip last year that I am expecting this one to not be good weather. And I don't think anything will compare with uh, my trip from Rockland down to Charleston a couple years ago where I ended up east of Bermuda in a three-day gale, (laughs) hove to, just waiting for the winds to shift. Um, (laughs) That was pretty pretty annoying. It wasn't scary by any means because the winds were coming out of the southwest, but it was just annoying. The, The winds were so strong, and I couldn't do anything but lose ground very slowly and uh, <laughs> try and avoid the really, really heavy winds that were to the west of me. So uh, that's basically me in a nutshell at this point. So I've done a bunch of varnish work. I'm putting things back together. I've got a few projects And each day I just take a look at this list and try and cross another thing off. And that's that's what's going on. I have a couple of weeks. I'm paid up at the old marina until the end of the month. So if I can get out of here June 1st, then I owe no man no money. And I am a happy guy. Um, And then I can head out to sea. So... Fingers crossed that I get a good weather window. I want to, my goal is to have the boat 100% ready, barring uh, the food. So boat is 100% ready. All I would need to do is top up the water and then um, go to the grocery store. That's what I'd like to have that by May 20th. And then, you know, as I see a window possibly coming, that's when I'll clean the bottom of the boat. And then if it, it comes through, I'm out of here. Like I said, I try and ride sort of the tail end of a system going out, catch some southerlies, go into the Gulf Stream, 
get out of that after a couple of days and then head for Cape Cod. So bounce through. I don't know. I wonder if I'll go outside of George's bank or inside. Outside of George's, there's less traffic, less fishing boats. Inside of George's, which is the way I've gone almost every time just because of the weather, um, I'm always ducking and dodging. You get in all the fog. There's tons of boats. I don't know. It's kind of an annoying little place, but it's a little shorter. And a lot of people will say, well, why don't you go through the Cape Cod Canal? And again, it's just, you know, to get to the Cape Cod Canal for a solo sailor, it's you're talking being awake for 24 hours or so, dealing with all the fishing and all the shipping traffic. Then you get through the canal. You got to time it right with the tides. You get past that, and now you're in, you know, the Gulf of Maine, but you're still in all the fishing and stuff and all the traffic from Boston. I don't know. For me, that just is a nightmare. I, give me give me open ocean blue water. That's what I'm sort of looking for. So I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the episode. That's pretty much it. Um, there's probably about 150 other things that I can think of that I should talk about. But, uh, you know, that's that's sort of my basic list. And I guess the last thing I'll say is I always keep this notepad with this list open and on the table with a pen on it because I'm either crossing stuff off or I'm adding to it. And, uh, that is probably one of the most essential things you can have is just a a list of what you need and, and all that and what you have to do because it's way too easy to overlook stuff. And all of a sudden you remember something in the middle of the night, you get up and you write it down and then you will never forget it because it's, you got a hard copy. But other than that, I'm hoping to pin a couple of people down before I go north for a few more interviews because there are some really interesting men and women down here um, that have some pretty incredible stories that hopefully they will be willing to share. And, um, and then I do have a few more of the Appalachian Trail stories and states coming up but those those i'm i'm writing this book about that trip and i am still in virginia and i i'm having trouble because i'm sort of getting discombobulated between the podcast story and the book story and them coming together and there's just a lot of stuff going on with me taking off to go north and and everything so be patient, but there are there's there's at least like three or four more coming up because that's where the AT stories get pretty cool. Uh, once you get past New England and then get back into the rough and rugged mountains of the the Green Mountains, the the White Mountains, and then up into Maine. So we're getting there. But uh, other than that, thanks for listening, and till next time. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoy the podcast and want to support it, just go to podbean.com and you can become a patron and keep the show on the air. Also, if you like the music at the beginning, the album is called Deep Teal and the artist is Adrian Edson. It's available on Amazon Music. And if you want the full story of the trip around the world, the book, the Kindle book, and the audiobook can all be found on amazon.com, Sailing Into Oblivion, the solo nonstop voyage of the mighty sparrow. Fair winds and following seas.